Church, please take your seats. Well, good morning, church. Please take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. And today in Isaiah 66, we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 as we're going to be hearing God speak to his people about his holiness and his desire to dwell with the humble. But before we get to our text, we actually have to consider the context. This is the last chapter in the book of Isaiah. And it's going to be read aloud by the Judeans right after they return to their homeland after being in exile in Babylon. And before this, Isaiah prophesied to the Jews for decades that they would be under God's judgment and carried away by a pagan nation if they didn't repent of their idolatry. Instead of turning in repentance, the people of Judah would continue in their stubborn pride, worshiping God the way that they wanted to, in a hypocritical fashion. And unfortunately, Isaiah's warnings would expire, and so would their time. The judgment of God would arrive suddenly with a Babylonian army invading Jerusalem, sieging and destroying the city of Zion and the temple that Solomon built that the Jews believed would house the manifest presence of God. God's judgment would be swift, and Judah's rescue from captivity would take a lifetime. It would actually take 70 years before Judah was freed from captivity and permitted to return to their homeland. So let's put ourselves in their sandals for a minute, shall we? Let's say we're among those freed from captivity after decades. We would have heard our elders weeping and singing about how they wept and how they missed Zion. We've been, we've been born in captivity in Babylon, and now we have returned to Jerusalem. We would be thinking that building a house for God would be appropriate, since God would need a place to dwell in Judah. And perhaps God, seeing this new temple, would look upon us with favor, a special favor, blessing our return from exile. Now, Judah would have thought those things, and they would have thought specifically that God needed a house. Not remembering that he was the one, as I, Isaiah 57 verse 15 would say, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. In their zeal to build something for God, they would be forgetting that their God wasn't as interested in temples as he was the humility of his people. God opposes the proud, and his people were to be holy as he was. And so before the people of Judah reviewed their temple building plans, they needed to check their hearts. They needed to be reminded about who their God was and where it was that God truly esteemed to live. And so now as we approach our text, hear God through Isaiah speaking to his people. Look with me there now. This is what Holy Scripture says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
And so right from the, on to, uh, the onset of our text, we see that humility is impossible without a right view of God. Humility is impossible without a right view of God. Now I know that our topic today is humility. And I anticipated talking about the characteristic of humility much more. But the text that I chose is not primarily about humility. It's about God in his holiness and in his majesty. And before we get familiar of the humility that God speaks of in verse 2, it's important that we get to know who our God is. Because no one can be truly humble without a right view of him. And in our text today, we don't see God speaking first primarily about humility, but telling us of himself and specifically about where he lives. And that gives us our point, our point here, where God dwells on his throne in heaven. Hear what he says in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In verse 1, we see God not only introducing himself as the one who is speaking through Isaiah when he says, thus says the Lord. But we also see God telling Judah of his holiness by reminding them where he resides. God is communicating to his people, like he is to us today, of his holiness by telling us where he lives. By telling us where he lives. And most of us are familiar with this vision of God from chapter 6 in the book of Isaiah where God reveals himself to be the sovereign king on the throne in heaven. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with the two he flew. And one called to another and said... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When we compare Isaiah's vision of God in chapter 6 with our passage here today, we see that nothing of his vision has changed. God is still holy and reigning from heaven in awesome majesty. Elsewhere in scripture, God declares himself not only to be majestic, but to be clothed with majesty himself. Psalm 93 verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. We might say that God is great sometimes, and some people from other religions might say that God is the greatest, but it is most theologically appropriate to say what Psalm 145 verse 13 says. God's greatness is unsearchable. God's greatness is is unsearchable. Isaiah would be proclaiming this time and time again to Judah throughout his ministry in order to comfort them in the Lord after their exile under the judgment of God. Judah had finally returned to their homeland after being ripped from all they knew and dragged uh, from their holy city to an ungodly pagan nation. And with the temple of Jerusalem destroyed, the Jews would have thought themselves to be without God's presence Where is God going to live? we got to build a house for him. He needs a home. It's no wonder why we see God telling Isaiah to comfort his people in chapter 40 onward in the book of Isaiah. But God's method of providing faith for his people was not a promise of prosperity, 
Neither was it premature deliverance from a place of, from a place of being exiled. That wasn't what God was really saying, although some false prophets would say that. No, God's method of instilling faith in his people was to remind them of who their God was. We're coming out of a difficult time in our church. We need to be reminded about who God is. Judah needed to hear that their God was not like the gods of the Babylonians who were limited to temples. They needed to hear that their God couldn't be contained. That he was existing infinitely great beyond their imaginations. Listen to a few of these sections in Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scales and the hills in a balance? Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted as before him as nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Nothing, no one, not one thing or person can be compared to God. He is completely other. He is holy. He is set apart unto himself. He is the definition of of being separate, of being unique. And when God declares that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool, he is declaring himself to be the sovereign king and ruler of all creation. And to this day, we have kings, presidents, prime ministers, They sit on thrones and in their oval offices and their parliamentary buildings as they rule over the nations. But our God is the sovereign king and ruler of all nations and peoples. He reigns over the smallest dust mite on planet earth to the end of existence in the furthest reaches of the universe and beyond. This is our sovereign God. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 103, 19. And this ought to make us humble. This ought to be making us humble. Jesus would affirm Isaiah 66, 1 during his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 34 and 35, saying saying this, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. Jesus is teaching his listeners what Isaiah taught Judah in our text. He is teaching them that God's supreme holiness and sovereign rule over all creation is to invoke a response of humility. When we see God on his throne, it puts us in our place. He's so completely other. Our minds can't fathom his greatness and his holiness. And this is actually the first step toward humility. We will only embrace humility if we know and acknowledge God to be the one true God and if we acknowledge where he is in heaven. Otherwise, we might think that our gods, like other gods, housed and contained in buildings made by his creation. But we see in 1 Kings 8 that King Solomon, after building the temple, understood who God was. 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? 
Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You see that? God's greatness can't be contained. He can't be limited to a place of gathering. His power and his presence are without limits. Making God the only being in all creation who is not only omnipresent, but self-sufficient. And that brings us to another point. After we acknowledge God's holiness and humble ourselves in light of that, we also need to acknowledge the humble truth, or the humbling truth, sorry, that God does not need us. God is the only one who is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. Listen again to verse 1 and what God asks his people. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? And we should be pondering these questions as we worship, as we walk with and work for Christ here at Hope Markham. We need to remind ourselves that before we get to doing the work of the ministry, that it's only God who completes the work of the ministry. God doesn't need our help to do anything for him. And the Jews reading Isaiah's scroll would have been influenced by a culture of idol worship during their time in Babylon. They would see people sculpting temples out of wood and clay and and stone and erecting these temples to house their gods in. Now it's not that Judah would believe that idol worship was appropriate, but they'd be influenced to think that God needed them to build a house for him. We see Stephen in Acts 7 quoting Isaiah 66.1 like Jesus was when he defended his faith in Christ before being martyred. Saying that God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Now it's important to note what God is not saying here. God's not saying, don't build me a temple. And he's not saying for us, don't gather to worship me in this building. But what God is saying is that he doesn't need anyone to do anything for him. Like like D.A. Carson says, the house is his cosmos. Sorry, his house is the cosmos. He doesn't need a house built by man. He resides in heaven, a place made for him by the only person qualified and the only person worthy enough to do anything for God. God himself. And God doesn't need to rest as though he would become tired. But if he chose to rest, would he choose a building, a temple made by his creation on a place that he considers to be his footstool? And think of it this way. Like, listen, if the Jews thought building a temple for God was going to impress him and gain his favor, wouldn't they be using the same resources that God had created and sustained? And that's why God says in verse 2, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. In verse 1, God has already declared to his people that he is holy and awesome in majesty, sovereign over all things. Now he is reminding them of his perfect power that he carries out in his office as our creator. And without coincidence, Isaiah in his writing style, is mimicking Genesis 1, where God says that he spoke and all creation came into existence. All these things his hand has made and all these things came to be. 
Would God who breathes out stars for his own pleasure and glory need a human being's help? Beloved, we're made from the dust of the earth. The answer is a resounding no. Now this might be somewhat deflating for us to hear in a culture of pragmatism and innovation. We always want to be doing things, particularly here in the West. But we all need to hear this. God doesn't need our help. And anyone thinks who they can, that they can help God in and of themselves has a low view of a high and holy God. Do you see that? The Apostle Paul would affirm this in his preaching to the Greeks in Athens. He would say that God, Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So church, we can affirm and infer from this text that God has not called us to serve him because he's in need of us. And for those of us serving in ministry, why do you believe that God has called us? Why do we believe that God has called us to serve him? Is it because that we're gifted or able in ourselves to do anything? I, I, I used to think that, but then I actually came into ministry and, well, let's just say God made it very, very clear that those were not the reasons. No, God has not called you to do anything for him because of anything good in you or any gifts that he gave you. In fact, he's probably called you because you are weak so that he can prove that he is strong. God has called you by his grace to make much of him and glorify him, not yourself. God chooses the foolish to shame the wise and what is weak to shame the strong. Sometimes we can fall into the same thinking like Judah did. We can get so caught up in the idea of doing something for God that we think that, we need, that he needs us. But that's actually a pagan idea. Wasn't it Christ who said, without me, you can do? Beloved, we can't do anything without God, and we certainly can't do anything to impress him. And God has made it clear who he esteems and actually where he, is, where he desires to dwell. And it isn't a man-made structure. It is with those who are humble, who are contrite in spirit, and who tremble at the word of the Lord. God desires to dwell in the hearts of his humble people who are in awe of him. That's where God dwells, with the hearts of the humble. Look with me one last time at verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The Jews of Isaiah's day would be erring in their approach to get God's esteem by building him a temple. They needed to be reminder, reminded that God's esteem was not for a building, it's for a person. God's esteem is for someone who is humble, a people who are contrite in spirit and who tremble at his word. Oh, that we would be this, Hope Markham. A proud person cannot receive God's esteem because they will not acknowledge or worship God for who he is 
And that is because a proud person, although they may not say it, wants to be God themselves. We all have that same pride within us, don't we? We often want to seize the throne in heaven and conform everything in our world to our needs and our wants. And the same pride found in our hearts is the same pride found in Satan when he sought to send the throne of God, to ascend the throne of God and take the place as a sovereign of all creation. It wasn't enough for Satan to be a majestic angel of God's creation. No, he wanted to be more than that. He wanted to be like the Most High. Listen to Isaiah quote him in chapter 14, verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And after Satan's fall from heaven, he would eventually deceive the first humans, Adam and Eve, to pursue the same thing that he was denied and condemned for, the attempt to be God themselves. He would draw them away from obedience to their creator in humble submission by telling them that they could be him. And when anyone attempts to be God, they're actually on a pathway toward atheism as Dr. John Piper says. He says this, Pride does not like the sovereignty of God. Therefore, pride does not like the existence of God because God is sovereign. Pride is actually an expression of unbelief in God and a fundamental denial of of the reality of actually who he is. It's a deception to think that we belong where he is. Or that we rule with might and deserve glory and praise. But we want to be sovereign, but we can't be. Because we're not God. As Piper would say further, we are but images of God, not the real thing. We are but shadows and echoes. The proud want to be God, looking down from their throne as sovereign, ruling their own lives, and sometimes even ruling the lives of others. But the humble, the contrite of spirit, they see and acknowledge God for who he is. They see him, as Isaiah did, high and lifted up. They recognize their utter need for God and they're painfully aware of their sin before a holy God. These are the mourners that, spoke, that Jesus spoke of in the Beatitudes who will be comforted by God who delights to dwell and revive the hearts of the lowly and crushed in spirit. God delights to dwell with and revive the hearts of those who are crushed in spirit. Now that word contrite, you see that in the text, contrite of spirit, the word contrite actually means to be crushed, to be crippled and broken the same word used for Mephibosheth, one of Saul's grandsons who was crippled, broken. The contrite of spirits do not dismiss their need for God and their sin and their guilt before God as a weightless matter. The proud will do that. If you are a proud person, you will dismiss your sin before a holy God. You will think that it doesn't matter to a holy God. The contrite in spirit are actually quite the opposite. 
They are crushed under the weight of the guilt of their sin as they behold God in his holiness. Listen to how Isaiah responded to seeing the glory of God back in chapter 6, verse 5. He pronounces a curse upon himself. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One of the only legitimate prophets and the godliest men in, in, uh, in all of Israel is pronouncing a curse upon himself when he sees the holiness of God. When you behold God in his holiness, do you react like this? Do you cry out as Isaiah does? Have you ever seen God for who he is to be in his word? And have you ever trembled in awe and in fear of him? This is the proper response to beholding God. And God is pleased to dwell with those who are humble and are contrite of spirit. In Isaiah 57, 15, God says this, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lonely and to revive the heart of the contrite. Beloved, this is what revival is. A people crushed and broken over their sin before a holy God who comes to dwell with them to heal and to revive their spirits with his power and comfort. This is what happens to someone who believes and knows who God is, who acknowledges their sin before God and comes before him broken for salvation. Are we indifferent when we hear these things? Are you indifferent to when you hear God's word and you see him in his majesty in scripture? Sometimes I am. Sitting at the the breakfast table. Oh yeah, Lord, you're in heaven. And at the dinner table, Father in heaven. No, sometimes we, we need to set ourselves apart and say, Lord, you are in heaven and I am not. I humble myself before you. I'm eager to worship you and, and obey you. I'm in awe of your majesty, Lord. That's what it means when Isaiah says to tremble at the word of the Lord. It means to be in awe of God's majesty. Now we spoke at length of God's holiness, but we're now we're going to be closing by hearing about God's humility, and there's actually no one more perfect as our example of humility than God's Son, Jesus Christ. You could say, Josiah. <laughs> A theologian might say that. Josiah. Numbers 12. It says Moses was the humblest man on earth at the time. I could reference Moses. I really could. But here's the problem. Moses' humility doesn't even come close to comparing about, with, with the humility of Christ. No man is capable of being like Jesus, the God-man. And so we approach Jesus, our example of humility, the king who chose to be a servant. 
God is pleased to dwell with the humble, and he was pleased to dwell in fullness with his Son, who descended from his throne in heaven as the sovereign king of all the universe to be born in a manger. All his life, Christ would be in the perfect posture of humility. The eternal one beginning life as a babe. The king of heaven born in a measly manger. Son of God the Father obeying and honoring human parents. Sovereign ruler of all the nations paying taxes to Caesar. The one who is to be served washing the feet of his disciples. The holy judge of all. Dying for condemned and sinful criminals. Church, Christ is our example. And there is no level of humility too low for us to embrace with one another when we behold him who descended from the highest of heights. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul would command the church to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important as themselves. Not merely looking out for their own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know what that means? That means I don't come first. That means you don't come first. And what was this based on? Was this based on Moses' example? No, it wasn't. It was based on Christ, on his person and his work. Look at Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Hope Markham, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our example of humility. He is the supreme and holy, high and sovereign God ruling over all creations. Hebrews says that he is upholding the universe, reality itself, by the word of his power. And yet this, this, this one that sat on heaven's throne with the earth as his footstool, the one who inhabits eternity, would come to be with us as one who serves. This is our God, holy and yet humble. Humble enough to take our sin and bear its guilt and shame and die accursed on a Roman tree to save us from an eternity under God's wrath. And Philippians 2, 9-11 to says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is your response to hearing of this Jesus who died and now is risen from the grave, whose sacrifice was approved by the Father, who reigns at the Father's right hand, calling you to himself today. What is your response? Because if God himself 
humbled himself, why can't you bow the knee to Jesus? The only proper response to hearing the good news of what we call the gospel is to be humbled, to be contrite, and to tremble at God's word, repenting of your sin with faith toward God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There was a pastor who once said that there are two types of people on earth. One type says, my will be done. And the other type says, thy will be done. Let's be a church that says to God together, thy will be done. Church, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And yet, he dwells with the humble. We here at Hope Markham will be postured in humility as we get to know our God more. And the more we get to know our God, the more we will become aware of two things. God's need for nothing and our absolute and utter need for him. Would that God would come and continue to dwell with us here at Hope Markham and grace us with his presence as we worship him with humble hearts here in awe of our creator and king. Let's pray together to close. Dear Father, I want to thank you because through your son Jesus, we can come together as a congregation and worship you in spirit and in truth. You are looking for worshipers as such. And I am praying that the posture of our hearts and the cry of our hearts would be to worship you and adore you and make much of you here at Hope Markham in a posture of humility. Thank you, Father, for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen.